By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. I am John Sherman, owner of Practical Golf, and as always, I am joined by my co-host... Adam Young from adamyounggolf.com. And uh, we're on episode six of The Sweet Spot. We've been pretty productive. We're, we're trying to get a new episode for everyone listening every week. I just want to thank everyone. I've gotten a lot of messages, and I think Adam has too, people just reaching out with feedback and positive comments. We really appreciate everyone reaching out to us with ideas for episodes and kind of giving us a pat on the back or even giving us some negative feedback. That's fine too. Adam, I think you're, you're starting to hear more from your readers now. Yeah, there's a few comments on Facebook and then obviously on Twitter. So people seem to be liking it a lot. And yeah, I hope like we were talking about before we started the podcast, I hope that people start to subscribe to us because we're trying to build this into a, a full library for for everybody to go through. So if you haven't gone through the previous episodes, this isn't sequential. You don't have to go in order necessarily. So just dive in where you want, but make sure you subscribe so you're getting each week that new information. So this is hopefully evergreen content. Yeah, I think you're supposed to say smash, smash, smash that, that subscribe. Like I mean, yes. like, why would you, why would someone <laughs> smash their phone? Like, I don't want you to break your phones, but like lightly tap it and subscribe. Uh, we'd appreciate that. Caress it. <laughs> yeah. So what are we talking about today, Adam? We're going to talk about feedback because it is very, very important. If you're practicing without feedback, you might as well be throwing darts blindfolded. And obviously we get some sort of feedback, right, when we see the ball flight. But there are other things that can break down that ball flight information into more more valuable information for us that allow us to uh, to practice more effectively and to make the right changes as well. Yeah, I think the problem we're trying to solve for everyone, and I know I used to get frustrated tremendously by this, not to say I don't anymore, it still happens, but probably a little bit less, of that problem that everyone says like, oh, I keep practicing and I keep hitting balls and then I show up to the course and it doesn't translate. And Adam, you know, I'll give you a quick plug here. You've written one of the great resources on practice, the practice manual. It's a phenomenal book. But I think 
the two of us are continually trying to solve that problem for golfers is that what can we do to help you make your practice time more efficient and more importantly, make sure that you're getting benefit from the time you're putting in. And one of that is that, you know, most golfers, when they're practicing, they're not paying attention to what's going on. They're not, they're not receiving the proper feedback or, and sometimes they don't even know what to look for. So I think that that's mainly what this episode is going to be about. What, what type of feedback you can gather from your practice sessions and what you could do with it. Is, is that a good summary of what you'd like to discuss here? Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's something that the modern technology, the feedback that I'm lucky to have in, in a launch monitor, it just makes it so much more efficient. You know, I can hit balls, I can hit three shots on my launch monitor or fewer and know what my patterns are instantly, you know, because it gives me the numbers. I know what's going to happen. I know what my path is. I know what my face is. I know what my strike was exactly. And so it just makes the whole process so much more efficient that I need to practice less now in order to achieve the same results and get, get better quicker or maintain my level. I'm, I'm lazy. I'm at that point at stage of my career now where uh, if I can go out and shoot between five under and five over, I'm happy. I don't need to put the 40 hours of work in each week in order to shave that stroke off. But obviously for you, for the listeners to this, they're looking to, to get much better. They're looking to go from 18 to single figures perhaps. And so they need to really make sure that practice is effective. Yeah. And everyone listening probably has jobs, families, all types of responsibilities in their life. So you don't have unlimited time to practice and we want to, whatever time you do have, you want to make it count. So let's just start off here. You know, you, you've written a lot about the different kinds of feedback in great depth that you get from practice. I think I know what you're going to say, but let's start with number one. What's the most important thing that people should be paying attention to while they practice? strike quality which can be split into face strike so heel or toe and ground contact so how the club face is interacting with the ground so let's start with the face of the club and we have a we mentioned this on the winter practice podcast what's the most efficient way for someone to know where they're striking the ball on the face of the club and then what are they going to do with that information i think you know, something that I've kind of learned over the years with the technology of gear effect with the driver and where you're striking it on the face of even your irons, how it affects the ball flight. Let, let's talk about that a little bit and then how to gather that feedback. Yeah. So Dr. Scholl's foot spray, Dactarin, if you're in the UK or dry shampoo, those are different ways you can do it. Just spray the club face lightly. It will create a light white dusting on the face. And then when you hit the ball, you'll see the imprint of the golf balls. That will tell you exactly where you've hit on the face. You can also use a marker pen. So dry erase, don't use permanent marker. Just put a little bit, little dot on the back of the ball of dry erase. Make sure it's at the equator or, or slightly below it. You know, you don't want it, you don't want that dot on the ground because the club face is not going to interact with it and you don't want it higher than the equator either. But if you place it just below the equator, hope people can visualize that, then it's going to transfer to the club face. I like that one because it gives really precise feedback and you can kind of leave it on there as well. And once you hit a few shots, you'll start to see any patterns or tendencies that you have. We're going to go down a list of stuff, but this is like a must do whether you're practicing indoors into a net, outdoors on artificial turf at a range, or you've got access to a grass range, whatever. I think every golfer of every level should be doing this because most people don't understand where they're striking it on the face. And 
I think, again, we discussed this in prior episodes, but you want to go through a diagnostic phase where you're just understanding your your tendencies as a ball striker. For me, I'm mostly hitting it on the heel of the club. And if that gets too extreme, we we know the problems that can arise from that. Luckily, I haven't suffered from that problem too much in my golfing life, but it has happened. But you got to understand where your tendencies are. And what I want to discuss is how that relates to ball flight. So let, let's just talk with the driver, for example, because I still don't think most people know this. Like, Adam, why don't you talk about gear effect really briefly? Because people watch their ball flight after they hit their driver and they, and they mostly think it's related to the path. But talk about how the impact on the club face can also affect the ball flight, because this is like a must know, I, I believe, also for, for impact location and ball flight. On our previous podcast on face direction, we talked about how path and face create a lot of the ball flight. When you have a driver in the hand, so this is more applicable to the bigger headed clubs. This doesn't really happen in irons, and there's a very complicated reason why. But once you get a bigger headed club, like a hybrid, wood, or driver, there's something called gear effect. So I used to notice standing on the lesson tee, I would see someone make a swing that looks like a slice, and their tendency tends to be a slice as well. You know, you see their path, they're over the top, open face, and you're expecting that ball to have a banana shot to the right. And then all of a sudden it stays straight, straight left, or it even hooks. You're like, what, what happened there? Oh, it starts right and hooks. You're like, well, hmm, that's interesting. Well, luckily, most teachers are going to stand there and be baffled unless they know about gear effect. And luckily, more, more instructors are highly educated in gear effect now as, as well as amateurs. So gear effect is basically when you miss strike the face, that club will twist open or closed depending on where you hit on the face. And the ball will have an opposite effect because they act like gears at impact. They act like cogs. And so if, for example, if you hit the toe of the club, that club will twist open and that will have a counter twist on the ball, which will actually send it to the left. Completely counterintuitive because you'd think if that face is twisting open, it's going to go to the right. So, uh, yeah, often you'll find that someone will hit the toe and it will hook, toe hook. Or the reverse can happen as well, where we hit the heel and the ball can flare out to the right. So it's this is why it's really important to know, because I've seen players, good players especially, who have decent knowledge on impact laws. And they say, well, I'm hooking everything and I'm trying to fix my path and face. And I look at what they're doing and I see they're actually just hitting out of the toe. So they're fixing the wrong thing. And if they'd had that feedback as to what they, where they're hitting on the face, they would have been able to identify it better and fix the strike instead of the path and face. So there are three things with the, with the driver that you need to be aware of for direction. It's path, face, and strike location. And I'll just give an anecdotal example of how that shows up on the course and also, like you said, I think a lot of golfers have made mistakes and they're trying to make changes in their swings when they don't have to. It's more about strike location. So take me, for example. I've mentioned this on other episodes. I have a very in-to-out swing path and I draw the ball, sometimes hook it. But my tendency as a ball striker, if I'm going to miss the center of the face, is to be striking it towards the heel. So that that's actually a decent pattern for me because sometimes it actually counteracts. Like let's say I was a little too into out and all things being equal, I was going to hook the ball. 
sometimes when I heal, uh, when I hit it on the heel, it actually straightens my ball flight out. But when I know I've got a problem on the golf courses, it'll start looking like a slice. And the old me who didn't understand ball flight laws would be like, oh, I must, you know, I'm, something must be wrong with my swing. I'm slicing it and maybe trying to make some fix there. It's not. I'm just hitting it really close to the heel of the club, so much so that it's kind of overpowering the path of the club. And I'll hit sometimes these what look like high slices, all because of impact. And with that knowledge on the course, I'm trying to make small adjustments. So if I see that pattern for the day, if I'm seeing that heel pattern, knowing that what the ball is doing, particularly with my driver, I can work backwards from there. And when we talk about feedback and strike location, I think that's perhaps one of the more important concepts to get just because it's so counterintuitive and no one has ever taught it when they take up golf. So that that's a reason why, you know, spraying your driver face or even hybrid or fairway wood while you practice and start seeing where you strike it and what the golf ball is doing. You know, you can make some adjustments and, and try and consciously strike other parts of the face, but also know that when you got on the course, this is why these things are happening. So that kind of covers, I mean, we're going to go over a lot here, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. But Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, that gear effect is almost non-existent with irons or, or not existent enough where it influences uh, the, the ball flight enough? Yeah. The closer the center of mass of the club is to the face, the less gear effect is. So basically, the thinner the head, the less gear effect is is an issue. So that's why with irons, it's not there or barely noticeable. In fact, with bladed irons, it's going to be hardly noticeable at all. If you get some of these really chunky beginner clubs, you can start to see a little bit more gear effect with them. That's probably why pros prefer thinner headed clubs or one of the reasons why. So yeah, it's it's not something to worry about with irons, but certainly once the head becomes bigger, it is. And that can be why some players say, well, I hit a draw with my irons constantly, but for some reason I'm slicing my woods. And that would be the case that you're talking about there. Exactly. Where I'd look at the strike and say, well, yeah, it's because you're striking with the heel with maybe all your clubs, but it's only showing up gear effect wise with the bigger headed clubs. Exactly. There are days where if you followed me on the course, you'd, you'd see a pretty consistent draw pattern with my irons and then you'd see maybe six or seven tee shots that are going from left to right. So it absolutely can happen to me and does. So in terms of strike feedback, I think our, our main recommendation is spray the face, get the feedback. You know, a common theme amongst our practice advice is trying to do the opposite. You know, if you're a heel striker, try and strike it on the toe. See if you're moving it towards the center of their face and vice versa. I think both Adam and I keep talking about doing the opposite is a great way to fight your tendencies after you've diagnosed them. And we could potentially spend a whole episode on strike. I know you have a whole strike plan about it on your site. Let's talk about ground contact as feedback, unless there's something else you want to add with strike. I don't no, want to jump over No, you. I mean, we've got so much to go through. So ground contact, yeah, that is a, a vital thing as well. If you don't contact the ground at all, you might be striking it thin. I mean, it, it depends on a bunch of stuff like how tall the grass is and, and how shallow your angle attack is, things like that, how fast the club is moving even influences it. But with an iron, I am looking at divot location, whether there is a divot or whether the club is just touching the ground. There's a lot that you can't tell from divot location. Like you can't really get an accurate idea of angle of attack. 
you can't get an accurate idea of swing path from divot location as well or from from the divot but you can get an accurate idea of where the club first contacted the ground because it's direct feedback for that and that's important as well so i like to spray a line on the ground using your dr Scholl's foot spray again so it just washes off with the rain and then place the golf ball on top of that line and hit shots and you can see where the divot started or you can if you're out on the course just take a tee with you or a penny or something and then place it next to the golf ball as long as it's not a competition obviously and then when you hit your golf ball you can look down and see relative to the penny where that divot was so obviously the penny's off to the side a little bit so you're creating an, an imaginary line but it's slightly better feedback than not having that penny there and you're kind of guessing where the ball was so always having that idea of where the divot was or where the ball was and where the divot is relative to it is so important. And you can get some other feedback that tells you where you struck the ground relative to the ball. Better players use sound a lot. I mean, obviously, if it sounds crisp, if it sounds ball first, then divot, then that is a good sign that it was. If it's very muffled, then you've obviously hit it fat to some degree. And if you don't take a divot at all and it's and it hurts your hands, then it's going to be a thin shot. You can on range mats, and this is really difficult to get feedback on range mats, but you can use vertical strike to a certain extent. So using the Dr. Scholl's foot spray again or the marker pen, if that strike location is higher on the face, that tends to signify a fat shot. And the reverse, if it's lower on the face, then it's a thin shot. So you can adjust your arc depth then dig in deeper or shallower, depending on, on what result you had. In my office, I have a fiber-built mat. So it's actually just a bunch of bristles. And so it gets rid of the bounce-up effect. So I've seen sometimes where some people hit it so fat, you know, three, four inches behind, and it actually bounces up and they strike it low on the face, which can throw people off. But with the fiber-built mat, that doesn't happen. So that's why I like that. So you've got sound, you've got vertical strike location, you have the divot location, and I'll let you talk about the other feedback device that we've both been promoting recently. Yeah, but before I get to that, I just want to ask you a question because I know this comes up a lot. For someone like me, like I don't I don't really take a lot of divots on the golf course. I'm, I'm more of a picker. And I think some golfers assume that to become a better iron player that they have to take a divot. And then, you know, we spoke about it in the Swing Myth episode of that idea of hitting down on it. But you've taught a ton of golfers and you've seen a lot of turf interaction on the course. What are your thoughts on that in the sense that like the idea that like, oh, I have to be, you know, striking the ball and then tearing up the ground in front of it. Of course, we do want ball first, then turf interaction. But does someone even need to take a divot to be an effective ball striker and hit, you know, functional golf shots? No, you can pick it off the turf. That's absolutely fine as well. You just have to be be wary that you're more likely to thin it as your yes, bad I shot. Think, yep, so again, just looking tendency. at vertical strike location, just, you know, getting whether it's high or low on the face and adjusting your arc depth from there. So it's all a depth game. And you, you have to be aware that if you do take a divot, if you do take a divot, then make sure it's in the right place. You know, make sure it's ball then turf or ball and turf together. 
Yeah. So the, I mean, the product that Adam has been alluding to, and let me be clear, <laughs> neither me or Adam usually push training aids on anyone. I, I've been contacted by a lot of companies trying to push training aids and I, I stay away from them because I don't want to talk negatively about them, but I just feel there's a lot of products out there that really don't help golfers. But one that both of us have been using recently, I've been using this thing a ton now is this divot board. And it's given me the feedback of where I'm actually striking the ground and interacting with the ground while I practice on my mat. Because as I mentioned, I'm a bit of a a picker. I don't take big divots with my irons. And because of that, I I, kind of struggle with where I interact with the turf. I, I can hit it thin sometimes. I usually am not hitting it fat. And I've been working with this product for, I don't know, a month now, and I'm, I'm starting to see what my tendencies are, and it's really interesting. But Are you hitting behind quite a lot? Yeah, I, I actually – it's interesting is that for the most part, if I'm you know missing, I'm initiating contact several inches behind the ball. But I, I think I get away with it on the course because my attack angle is so shallow. So I'm probably like brushing the grass a little bit well, that's before it. When- I hit the ball. That's it. When you are a picker, it tends to signify you're probably a shallow angle of attack as well. Oh, Not I know always. I'm shallow, yeah. yeah. I'm, but, def- I'm like zero. And like you said, you'll be getting away with it because when that ball is resting on grass, you have that buffer between where the ball is and where the actual mud is. Whereas when you're on the divot board, you don't have that buffer. So it's exactly. it's great to be able, whether you're a picker or whether you're munching the ground, it's great to get that feedback of where that club, where the sole of the club is actually touching the ground first. Yeah. And I've been trying to experiment with what I can do to obviously move that line closer to the ball. And it's funny, I find that when I start the season, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of the picker, but the more, and I don't have a grass driving range at my golf course, we have turf. And I think this has been the problem for me, but I'll always notice as I get further into the season, I end up taking more of those divots in front of the ball just because I'm getting more comfortable being on the turf because I you know I live in New York so I'm I'm not on a golf course for 4 to 5 months a year. So every spring I have to get back getting used to that grass interaction. So I think that the divot board's going to help me with that cuz it's giving me feedback. But it's interesting when we talk about feedback and ground interaction, I mean the grass is the best because you know you're getting the real deal of, of feedback, whereas most of us are stuck kind of on artificial turf. So it's, it's been nice to actually get a visual idea of where I'm interacting with the ground. One of the beauties with the divot board is you can actually start to experiment a little. So you can take the ball away and swing back and hit too far in front, hit too far behind, which you can do on grass as well, but it's not fun. And the groundskeeper will probably be pretty upset with you if you're making all these divots. But one of the other ways that I've, I've done it without the divot board in the past is to get into a bunker and rake it flat with the back of the rake draw a line in and then you can you, you know you can hit different parts of the ground relative to that line but this divot board takes away the need for that really that's why i love it so much all right well we'll stop our uh, ad read which is technically not even an ad read for it but you know it, it's something that it's actually sold out right now again because so many people are buying this thing but it's very cool it's one of the few training aids that's come along that i'm like oh that actually can help people but ground interaction like we said it's feedback that is crucial in practice. It's just, it's, it's hard to get on artificial turf. So, you know, you can go back to our, our winter practice episode. We've got some more stuff in there, but moving along, we got other stuff to get to here on feedback. 
I like to work backwards. I think there was a great quote out there. I don't know when he said it, but Rory McIlroy, not to compare myself to Rory, but it's it's how I think about golf as well. You know, they were asking him about how he uses TrackMan and all the modern technology. And his response was, is that still with everything he knows and everything he's, you know, worked with on all this technology, he's like, I still look at my ball flight and work backwards. He's like, not to say I don't use TrackMan to calibrate myself and see what's going on, but I still believe watching that golf ball sail through the air and what it's doing is still the most important feedback that any golfer needs because you look at what's going on and then you kind of work backwards. So why don't we talk about ball flight as feedback because you know let's say you are practicing on the range or you're or you're seeing your shots on the course you can kind of work backwards from there and you know adam you've done a ton of work on what makes the golf ball do what it does but as it pertains to practice like how do you like people using their ball flight as feedback well, we'll get rid of gear effect for this next conversation because yeah, I just about, throw yeah, forget in. about gear effect. <laughs> yeah, so with the irons, and that's that's what I'm doing. I'm mostly interpreting ball flight with the irons, and longer irons will give you a little bit more feedback because it just magnifies any error that you have. Say you have a wedge in your hand and the face is you know five degrees closed, you might not see much curvature. But if you do that with a four iron or five iron, it's going to be hocking off the planet. So using a a seven to five iron, something like that will give you really good feedback on what the path and face are doing. And so you can look at the launch direction of the ball. That will give you a very good indication of where the face was at impact. I don't really use that feedback that much. You know, it's there unconsciously. You know, if I hit a shot and it starts left, I'll just, I'll be in the awareness of, yeah, that face was too closed. But what I'm looking at is where the ball ends and how it curved in the air. Those are the two things when I'm playing that I'm, I'm very aware of. And so if it ends too far left or right, I will usually adjust the club face. So if my ball just finishes too far left, in most cases, I'm just going to be opening that the club face, that golden rule that we talk about, do the opposite of your fault. And in the rare cases where it finishes too far right, I'll just close the face a little bit. Now, the interesting thing is looking at the curvature of how it gets there, because that actually tells you a lot about the path. So I obviously have a launch monitor to help me with this, to, to like, Give me, give me. Um, I can't think of the the word verification. Is that the right word of of what I'm actually thinking and feeling? But you can tell so much from the ball flight. So the rule that I use is, if your ball flies with no curvature, then that is a good indication of where your path is. So what I mean by that is, if you hit a shot straight right, then it's very likely that your path is, is straight straight right as well. So if you hit it three degrees to the right and it doesn't have any curvature, it doesn't veer off line, then your path is probably three degrees right, something like that. Or probably a, a more intuitive way is when you hit a shot on target, so when you hit a shot that goes on your flag, how did it curve to get there? And whichever way it curved, your path is the opposite. So an example if I'm hitting shots and they're going everywhere, but I hit that one shot and it lands perfectly on my target and it curved left to get there, 
That tells me my path is right. I want it in to out. And vice versa. So a player who is out to in, you know, they're going to hit pulls and slices. But if they hit that shot on target, it's going to be a fade. It's going to curve to the right to get there. That's That signifies their path is left. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes... When we talked about our swing myths episode, we, we talked about how, you know, for, for decades we had gotten the ball flight laws wrong. I think people, a lot of golfers understood them intuitively, what they needed to do adjust on the fly. But we now know that the, the path of the club influences the curvature of the golf ball more. They used to think it influenced where the ball started. And in our last episode on face angle, we talked about you know, where your club is pointing at impact, that that has the most influence of where the ball starts. But in terms of the curve, what Adam is talking about, like if I know if I'm on the course or I'm on the range and I'm hitting the opposite of a banana slice, I'm hitting that horrible hook, I know that my path, if it's curving too much to the left, my path is getting too far into out, too much to the right. And not to be a broken record, but the way I try and fix that for me, I almost try and do the slice swing. I I, I feel the, the way I use the feedback of my ball flight and trying to do the opposite. Like I know I'm going to have the into out path no matter what, but I'm trying to make it less extreme. So if I notice my ball is curving too far from the right to left, I'm trying to make a feel in my swing. And this could be different for everyone. I'll just feel like I'm trying to hit a slice, but I know I'm not actually doing that. I'm just neutralizing my path a bit. And I think that that's the calibration. And we spoke about that in the face angle episode is like your golf is really this constant calibration of keeping these things in check. And that's really what practice is. You know, you're going to show up to the course with different patterns every day. Yes, you'll have a similar swing path, but some days it'll be more extreme and some days it'll be less extreme. And you've got to get the matchups right. Uh, on the topic of keeping it in check, I'll I'll even do what you just talked about. Even when my golf balls are landing on my target. So say I'm, I'm hitting shots, I'm having a decent day, the balls are landing close to my target, but they are curving a long way to get there. So that, you know, I've got a maybe a 20 yard hook to get on my target. I will still, I want to keep things in check. So I know that if I'm hooking it 20 yards to get on my target, my path is too in to out. It's too much to the right. So I will try and neutralize it in the exact same way that you do it. I will try to feel more of a slice swing. I'll try and feel like I'm cutting across it until I'm hitting a straighter shot on the target. Now, I don't want everybody to think that you have to hit it like a laser beam to get on your target to play good golf. No, you can curve it there. But I just monitor. I keep it in check to make sure that curvature doesn't get too excessive. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, when they say the golf ball doesn't curve anymore, I mean, just <laughs> play one round with me, and you'll see that it does. And and I, I still score quite well. It's just it's managing that curve. I don't want to get it too extreme. What do you think about? You know, there there is some advice to someone like if you have someone who's a slicer, put them on the left side of the driving range, all the way to the left, and it almost like forces them to start swinging to the right. Like, what do you think about an idea like that? Like, if some, I mean, most people are struggling with a slice, so I want you to, as an instructor, give them some thoughts on that. Like, I think you know the the out to in swing path, the, the excessive one is is usually the problem of most recreational golfers. You know, what do you do with someone who's who's really struggling with that and their ball flight and, and how to fix that through feedback? 
we have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. That would be a step in the process. We call that a constraint, an environmental yes. constraint. So, yeah, it does work if you put a slicer on the left side of the range. They're just going to be hitting it into the net or they're going to be starting it into the net initially uh, because a slicer actually has a closed face. They just have a more left path. You know, their face might be three degrees left and their path might be six or seven degrees left. And so that actually causes a, a curvature to the right. But, yeah, I, I would just, with a slicer, I mean, this could make a whole episode in yeah, itself. Yeah, you know what? That was a horrible question because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just can't believe I said that. I mean, it just how to fix the slice. I mean, how many articles and golf digests have been written over the years? Well, I'll tell you what, like I'll an give, endless topic. I'll give but a I'm real just, basic. I'll give a real basic rundown of what I would do. I would first do something with that player to make the face even more closed, and so until they're hitting it way left, like pull hooks. And then from there, we would gradually make help them start it more to the right. And then we would recalibrate after that process is done. So that's a primer for a, an entirely different podcast. Yeah, well, I think maybe we can tackle the slice one differently. But when we talk about feedback on your ball flight and the curvature of the flight, you know, understanding that the path of the club is mostly responsible outside of what we discussed before with gear effect 
you just have to find a way of looking at the ball. If it's curving too much from left to right, there are ways to neutralize that technically getting lessons or right to left. And you're, you're just trying to, you know, I think Adam and I are keep saying this over and over in our, in our episodes, but we really believe it in your practice sessions with that knowledge, do some experimentation with what you can do working backwards from that fall flight to try and do the opposite, which is really neutralizing the problem. I think that in itself could help a lot of people rather than just showing up to the range and rifling through balls. Like you've got to make adjustments based on what the golf ball is doing. Here's another one. I'm looking at our list here. Uh, You put loft. And I think this is like super important. And I think you're referring to the trajectory of the golf ball, how low or how high it's launching, because I think most golfers struggle probably with adding too much lofted impact. They're hitting these like super high shots that aren't going very far. So you want to talk about loft now and, and that feedback, because that's super important to becoming a functional iron player, wedge player, all parts of the game. You have to control the loft of the club face. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, you can tell the loft of the shot by the launch angle. So if I'm hitting into a net or hitting into my simulator screen, wherever that ball first touches the screen will, will give me an indication. Or you can use a launch monitor to, to give you much more precise information. The peak height of the shot, so how high the shot ultimately goes, is a product of the launch angle and the maximum distance. So say, for example, two players launch the ball at 20 degrees. Well, a shot that goes 200 yards is going to be much higher or reach a higher peak height than a shot that only goes 100 yards or 60 yards. It's because it's trigonometry, right? Staying on that 20 degree angle for much longer. So generally, players with less speed players who are not as athletic, perhaps, they will need to launch the ball a little higher. And this is why when we, lots of players say, oh, well, I'm scooping it. I'm, you know, I'm I'm early releasing. It's like, well, yes, you hit the ball 60 or 70 yards. You need to, especially with modern clubs, right? These seven irons are like the old three irons with their lofts. So players have to almost add add some loft in a way to get a functional looking ball flight. So I'm not saying that's the best way of going around playing golf. I'm not saying that's optimal to try and scoop it in the air. But if a player is conceptually saying to themselves, I want to see this nice high ball flight, then that scoopy action is is basically their unconscious brain doing exactly what they're visualizing. Uh, again, this is another topic in itself. But in terms of like looking at feedback and what you can do in your practice sessions, like I, for example, I de-loft the club at impact. My hands are very far ahead at impact, which I can get away with because I have a lot of speed and I can get the ball up into the air eventually, even though I'm de-lofting at impact. I mean, I, I think people would refer to that as compressing the ball on, on TrackMan or whatever you know device you're using. But if someone is struggling on the range with shots that are too high, let's say, let's say they are, it's just visibly they're too high. Do you recommend working with like thinking about where that handle of the club is at impact? Because, you know, that does have a lot of influence. If you have a, a club and you're just pointing it straight into, let's say your belly button, and then you move it to the right, 
you're adding loft. And if that's your position at impact, then the ball's going to go up higher. I mean, th- th- it's an incredibly complex thought process, but like someone who's working on the range and they're seeing feedback of their ball flight, do you recommend saying like, oh, well, why don't you experiment with where the handle of the club is? Maybe you preset it super far ahead if you're struggling with too high sh- uh, shots and vice versa. Does that make any sense? Do you tell people to do that? Yeah, definitely. That's what I think about sometimes. Definitely. So shaft lean, basically, whether that club is leaning forwards, more, you know, the butt of the club is pointing more towards the left hip or right hip at impact or belt buckle. So that, that will influence. That's one of the biggest influences on the dynamic loft which is one of the biggest influences on the launch angle. The other influence on dynamic loft is whether the face is open or or to the right or closed to the left, because that actually influences the loft as well. But that'll influence loft and direction. So I hope people can visualize that. So we have shaft lean component of loft. and We also have the open or closed nature of the club face. Open or closed being left or right. So yeah, I, in terms of training... I might start with little chip shots with people saying hit a few shots with that shaft leaning forwards. Now hit a few shots with the shaft leaning much more neutral. I never go leaning back. You don't want to lean it back because that's the point where it becomes non-functional. Yeah, there's no way you can hit a really functional golf shot if you're imagining someone, their position at impact, if you freeze framed it. If their hands are pointing to their right hip for a right-handed golfer well behind the ball. That's a position that a lot of golfers put themselves in, but that's not a functional position. You can't control, in my opinion, you just, you cannot control the ball from that position. So I think what you said is like trying to either get it level where the butt of the club is maybe pointing towards that belly button straight down to the ball, or at least a little bit forward, depending on how much speed you have in your swing. Because if you de-loft too much, and you don't have enough swing speed, then you're going to be hitting these low stingers that don't get in the air, correct? Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, you can you need a certain amount of shaft lean, but you probably don't want to look like some of the pros because they have so much more swing speed than you. So we're lo- I'm looking with amateurs to be anywhere from forward, some, some degree forward leaning, but not excessive. I certainly don't want that shaft leaning backwards at impact though. Yep, but I think what you said, experimenting... I just think the handle of the club, the where the handle of the club is oriented at impact is as it relates to loft, looking at that feedback of ball flight. I just I think it's something that a lot of golfers don't even think about. So to your point there, experimenting with I do this with like wedge practice in my backyard or even on the course. I'm trying to manipulate almost where my hands are at impact to affect the loft of the club. And I think this is probably the most important in your wedge shots, depending on the the type of trajectory you're trying to get. So I would tell anyone, you know, for, for loft feedback, play around with your wedges, play around with where your hands feel like they're, they're at impact. And you can really manipulate the trajectory of the golf ball. You can make it go higher. You can make it go lower. And that's really improving the toolbox that you can bring out on the golf course and do some with slow motion videos to set the camera in the in the same place each time or just do it as a sequence of swings and try and hit one lower with more forward shaft lean and then one higher where the club feels like it points towards your belt at impact and see if you can change it you'll figure out that it's very difficult to change it what feels like a, a monumental change probably only changes the shaft lean by a few degrees you'll need it on high speed mode for that though you know a, a higher 
frame rate, I should say slow motion mode would, would be necessary <laughs> for that. But in terms of how to influence it, like you say, you can just tell yourself the end goal, right? Where, where you want the shaft to be at impact, or you could feel a difference in the release. So if I, if I got an alignment stick and I asked people to swish it really loud and very early, so swish it loud before the ball, and then I asked them to swish it loud after the ball, you'd notice different shaft leans at impact. So swishing it louder after the ball would tend to produce a more forward shaft leaning position at impact. And swishing it louder before the ball would tend to produce more loft, less shaft lean at impact. And then there are more complicated ways of, of changing shaft lean. You can look at lead wrist flexion at different points in the swing. I won't go through that for this, but that can be a good way of influencing shaft lean. Or you could go completely intuitive and is it Harvey Penick? I wrote an article about him where he, there was someone said, I, I had, I'm having bad shots. They're going too high. And he said, well, go and practice under that tree for a moment. Yep, and uh, I I'll, I'll come book. over. <laughs> yeah, I'll come over and, and fix you later. And by the time he got over there, the pupil had fixed themselves, basically. So again, that's an environmental constraint. Basically, he put him under a tree limb. And so that player was forced to hit it lower. As a result, lots of things cleared up. So in fact, that is a a roundabout way of achieving a lower launch is to change someone's strike location. So for example, if I get someone into the bunker, so the bunker drill I was talking about earlier where I draw a line in the sand, if I ask them to make divots and gradually we move that divot further forwards, more forwards, more forwards until the middle of the divot is, is much more ahead of that line, they will present more forward shaft lean at impact. So usually if I'm, if I'm trying to change a player's ground contact and shaft lean, I will use that approach. Yeah, there's a number of ways to do it. Another training aid I've actually used in the past is the DST compressor, which is super frustrating. Like the Tor Striker is like the easier version of it, but it's like a curved. Do you remember this thing? I, it's I still prefer out there. the Tor Striker. I, I really wasn't a fan of the DST. Oh, I, I loved it. It made my iron play like really. I mean, it made me kind of compress and, and forward shaft lean quite a bit, but it helped me a lot. I know I, I, I often refrain recommending it to a lot of golfers just because it's so hard to do. And as you said, it can give you excessive shaft lean, but the Tor Striker is kind of like a, a less a watered down version of that. Maybe it was more say. a fact I didn't like with the DST that the center mass of the club is offset from the shaft. So as you're yeah, swinging it, you feel all these different twistings and torques and things. I just, it just wasn't representative enough of a real golf swing. So that's why I prefer the tall striker. Yeah. But loft, I think, you know, that is uh, probably one of the less least talked about the feedbacks in terms of looking at your ball flight. So I would say think about that during your range sessions. You could do a, a a face on, you know, set up your your camera, your phone to look at your swing face on and and freeze it at impact just to see what your hands are doing because a lot of people don't know that. And I would use I think wedge play is a great way to experiment with that. And then you can kind of move that into your into your full swing a bit. Yeah, if you can't change it with a chipping swing or a wedge swing, you're not gonna do it at full speed, so start there. Exactly. And that's why I think, you know, the hands are incredibly important in the golf swing and where that butt of the shaft is leaning or not leaning at impact, again, impacts loft so much. So we've talked about strike location, ball flight working backwards with the curvature where it's starting. We talked about ground contact. We just discovered, uh, I'm sorry, 
talked about loft. What other feedback? We're kind of approaching the end here, but do you want to do a couple like maybe the technological, like quick video and quick launch monitor stuff? Do you do you recommend people using video a lot on their swings? Yeah, if they if they know what they're doing with it. Yeah, if exactly. They, if they know what they're looking for, I don't. <laughs> For the most part. Yeah, most people usually end up just going down the route of trying to make their swing look pretty or they pick a, you know, whoever was in vogue that week. If if Dustin Johnson won, then obviously everybody's doing Dustin Johnson's lead wrist. <laughs> so it's, it's... That makes... When I see him do that, like every time it hurts my left wrist just looking at him. I don't know how he gets in that position. I, I sometimes use that model as a, as a concept for people who have the complete opposite to say, you know, if you try to be like Dustin Johnson with your wrist, you'll probably get it more in the ballpark. But I certainly wouldn't recommend people have his actual wrist angles. I mean, injury-wise and I, yeah, I'm surprised he's not injured with it, but he's been doing it many years and he's fine. So, but yeah, on, on the topic of launch monitors, you know, I obviously have the high end GC quad. It's my favorite. I've used TrackMan FlightScope as well. They're, they're all good devices, but I've just found GC quad is much more consistent for spin rates and indoor numbers and more of the numbers make sense for me in terms of tracking ball flights you know if you want to see the real ball flights then trackman i think is the is the number one for that but you can get smaller versions for for yourself i think flight scope released the mevo plus which actually gives you direction as well so it gives you launch angle launch direction spin rates i'm not sure how accurate it is but people seem to be pr- pretty impressed with it and i think that starts about $2000 or so and then you can, and the sky track as well you have the sky track right do you want to talk yeah, that, about that that's what i use i mean i think for Ball flight, especially indoors, SkyTrack is the best option just because it's using a camera. Um, radar, if you don't have as much room inside, like I actually tested the Mevo Plus of the PGA show. Flight scope needs, and I, I would say this for TrackMan too, it needs a lot of space behind the ball and in front of it to see what it's doing. Whereas with a camera, whether it's SkyTrack or your GC quad, it doesn't need any space. So I always tell people if you're predominantly practicing indoors, I would go with a camera-based launch monitor for that ball flight simulation. SkyTrack at $2,000, I think, is still the best value. The Mevo Plus would be better if you plan on using it indoors and outdoors. SkyTrack doesn't work as well outside. But those are great. They're $2,000, so it's a significant investment, but you get all the simulation and you get spin rates, launch angle, all that good stuff. No club head data. You're not seeing the path or anything like that. I mean, SkyTrack for me, I've been using it for four years now. It's been, you talk about feedback, I've done a lot of great things, just seeing the feedback on my launch angle with driver and spin rates and kind of working backwards from there. It's been a really helpful tool. Cool. And then the lower end launch monitors will just give you distance, right? If if you want direction and curvature and launch angle and spin rates, you're going to have to pay a minimum of $2,000. But if you want basic things like distance, which is really important, then I think you know the best ones for that, right? Yeah, I've kind of become the guinea pig of, uh, or one of the guinea pigs of the, of the golf industry testing all these gadgets out. So there's a decent amount of options at the $500 and below level. The one that I think is 
the one that's kind of exploded the best bang for the buck is the PRGR. It's under $200 now. We have these deals on my site on Practical Golf, but you know, it gives you, it's super accurate for swing speed. If you're working with like super speed golf, trying to increase your swing speed, but you get really good. I've, I've tested against my SkyTrack even indoors and the ball speed and distance. If you set it up properly and you have the right conditions indoors, I mean, it was if within like two or 3%. So that's a really neat little device. I mean, you have to work a little harder for it. You have to like manually change the club that you're using so it can predict the loft, but you know, for 200 bucks or below, it's, it's a really I mean, there's professional golfers who use it for their swing speed now. And then there's there's a few others. I like the voice caddy ones are pretty solid. They've got remote controls, so you can kind of adjust the club or the loft you're using. They've got two models, the SC200 and the 300. The 300 does have spin rate now on the app, so that's a good one. Um, is I'll that, post reviews is to that all calculated? these. calculated? Uh, that's that's got to be algorithm. Yeah, it, exactly. They're all estimated. These are not... I've had a lot of people come to me afterwards where they've tested it against like TrackMan and other ones, and they're they're pretty close. Again, you have to have the right conditions. You have to have like enough space for it to see the ball. But if you're set up properly for most golfers, they're going to give you a, a pretty good ballpark of distance. I use the Swing Caddy 200, and I find that really good. I find it so accurate. In fact, I tested it against the Flight Scope. And I actually preferred the distance numbers that it was giving me because FlightScope was struggling with the spin measurements of the ball. Whereas because the SE200 was algorithmic, you know, it'd predict the spin rates. It was giving me much more consistent numbers that were matching what I felt was, was going to happen. Yeah, I'll post links to all the reviews I've done because I, I've literally spent hundreds of hours testing these things and written really extensive reviews. Another one that's, it's only for iOS, but I think, between the app and everything, the the Rapsido MLM is really good. It does give you in the app the readouts. It has direction and it stores all your data, but it's using a combination of your iPhone's camera and radar at the same time. And they just released indoor capabilities as well. That one's really solid. It, it's it's just under five hundred dollars now, but it, unfortunately, it's only for uh, Apple users. They're going to add Android. But that one is, I think, the most polished product. But there's trade-offs with all of them. You know, you have to set your phone up with it. It uses the phone's battery. So none of them are perfect. They all have their little trade-offs. But in terms of feedback, all those devices can give you pretty good measurements on how far you're hitting the ball at the range or into a net if you get the if you get it set up properly. So you can check those out. And just to recap on video, like I just think videos video is really good, I think, if you're working with a swing instructor. And you know what you're looking for in your swing and you're setting it up properly and putting it in the same spot every time. But if you're someone who's just kind of like messing around and like looking at your golf swing, like I don't really look at video of my swing ever. I, I, I just feel like it doesn't benefit me. I'd be careful with video. Like I just feel like some people spend a lot of time analyzing their swing and drawing lines on it and they don't even know what they're doing because, you know, the golf swing is complex. Like it took people like Adam, you know, well over a decade to understand it quite well. Yeah, I don't video my, I don't record my swing anymore. I mean, unless I'm doing a, a certain video for instructional purposes, but I don't find as much value as I, as I used to. And people just go down rabbit holes with it. They end yeah, up doing things that are about. completely irrelevant, com- things that are going to harm them, or they end up being too precise with something, which you can't be with video because, you know, they start looking at, oh, it's half an inch off here or something. And, and there's so much parallax 
If you don't know what that is, just Google it because I can't explain it. But it's how, I suppose it's how when something is closer to the camera versus farther away, it looks like it's in a different place. Same as when you're driving, it looks like the mountains in the distance are moving slower than the, the things that are closer to you. But it's just a, a 2D illusion. But there's so many issues with camera that you can't be too precise. You just have to look at generalized patterns or general patterns really with it. But one thing I know we're, we're coming up on an hour here, but one thing we haven't talked talked about yet it's probably the most important is keeping track of your end result and i know we've talked about launch monitors but something that you can do and i get all my players to do is to keep track of their end result on a paper format with a grid so i, I give them a basically a grid that is has a bunch of boxes in it and the middle box is where they were aiming and then they can mark down, they can put a little X whether they hit 10 yards short, 20 yards short, 15 yards short of where they were aiming, as well as 10, 20, 30 yards left or right of where they were aiming. And I find that really important information because as an example, when I give players this grid normally, within sort of the first 20 shots, they start to see, oh my God, I'm hitting everything short of where I'm aiming. And so then that affects club choice or, you know, we start to work on strike quality, whatever's causing the issue. But having that knowledge of where you hit, where your ball finishes relative to your aim is so important because it's, it's going to affect your strategy as well. I know my grid looks like it's everything's biased to the left of my aim. So I just aim to the right of my target. And again, we can go down a whole other podcast with that. But just to say... Keep track of where your ball finishes relative to your aim. And there are loads of actual apps at the moment that that can use that information. I'm trying to figure out which one I, I recommend. It's the Golf Stats Coach, Golf Stats app. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty I actually haven't one. heard of that one. No, I, I don't know if I've done the name justice there, but I'll, I'll send you the link and you can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll put it notes. in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're approaching the end of the episode here. Thanks for everyone who's made it this far. This is a bit longer than most of ours, but I think successful practice is about intent and feedback in the sense that if you just show up to the range and you're just hitting balls mindlessly, there's really no intent there. And if you don't pay attention to the feedback portion of it, like what Adam just mentioned, like if you were trying to hit a ball to a specific target, you've got to pay attention to what the golf ball did, where it ended up. And then if you want to get extra credit, keep track of that because those are the tendencies that you're going to bring out to the golf course. So for example, if I'm at a 150 yard target and I'm trying to hit my nine iron and I'm flushing it well over it, well then what am I doing to achieve that? Or if it's falling short of it, I've got to figure that out and then bring that out onto the course. That's really, I, I, again, what, what practice, I, I think it's just a constant calibration of the variability in your golf swing, of all the things we discussed, how you're hitting it on the face, the path of your club, where the golf club is pointing at impact, how you're interacting with the ground, how you present the loft. All these things change a little bit from day to day, week to week, and month to month. And I just view practice as trying to keep them within a functional window. You're not going to be perfect. You're just trying to be aware of what's going on 
and make those adjustments. If 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 you can't do that, I, I would suggest to work with a swing professional. But I think a lot of the stuff Adam and I are talking about where you're kind of experimenting with doing the opposite of your faults and paying attention to it. I think if you start doing that and you hadn't been doing it in the past, you're going to see some really interesting and positive results. That's kind of like my, that's like my closing statement there. I'm just going to like smack my gavel down or whatever the heck that is. But that's how I view all of this. I mean, do you want to kind of summarize your main thoughts on feedback and how it relates to practice? Well, you just mentioned something that we didn't mention. Probably the best form of feedback is a highly educated instructor, right? Someone can come onto yeah, my lesson absolutely. team and say, I, I'm, I think I'm doing this. I think I'm doing that. And I look and in one swing, I say, no, actually you're doing this. And we're always going to give really accurate feedback. And especially if we have a launch monitor with us. But on the topic of feedback, yeah, the analogy I use is, if you're throwing darts, I know you've just got your own dartboard. I imagine did. I'm throwing every night. <laughs> so imagine you're playing darts and you're blindfolded. You're not going to get good because you're not getting any type of feedback. But if you imagine you have a bell every time you hit the bullseye. So you don't know what's happening, but you know when you do it successful. Well, that's the next level of feedback. So you, you're throwing darts and you can get good at darts just with that bell. But the problem is you can't tell what's happening when you're missing. So you're getting very limited feedback. Now, the moment you take the blindfold off, you're seeing everything. You're seeing the flight, you're seeing the end position. So you can actually start to learn from your mistakes now and go through that calibration process that you talked about. And so golf is like that, really. Most golfers are completely blindfolded. They have the bell there. So when they hit a good shot, it's like, oh, I did something good. I did something well. But if you add other layers of feedback like a launch monitor or just an understanding, a better interpretation of that curvature and the start line of the ball. If you add that layer, it's like taking off the blindfold. You can start to learn much more from every single shot that you hit. Well, let's wrap it up there. We're almost at an hour here. Thanks to everyone who made it that far. It was a big episode and, and you don't have to try everything we discussed. Maybe just take the impact stuff and start there choose one thing and work with it the next time you're practicing. Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com and for yourself. This is John Sherman. I'm the owner of Practical Golf. You can find me at Practical-Golf.com. I'll post links to some of the reviews on the products we discussed. I've got some deals for people if you want them. I work with these manufacturers of the products I like, so you can access those. And then when you're done, I want you to, when you're done listening to this, take like an enormous sledgehammer and smash, like just smash your phone subscribe button. I hope it doesn't break before the time the internet <laughs> realizes that you subscribe to our podcast. But in any event, I, I really appreciate everyone listening. You can help us by subscribing. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review. Talk with us on Twitter or on our websites, and we're happy to hear from you. And we will see you next time.